What's beneath the surface of true crime? Uncover brings you there with premium investigations that demand justice. Each season delves into a distinct case, from the inner workings of a cult to the disturbing legacy of residential schools. Promising new content year-round, Uncover will take you on a journey through explosive revelations with hosts dedicated to revealing the truth. Uncover, the best in true crime. Find it on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. People argue, why are you having a climate change conference in a nation known for exporting oil and gas? Can we really trust the oil and gas industry? I think there is a question of credibility. There was widespread skepticism. It's very worrying because perceptions matter. Why it's okay to be skeptical of COP28. That's coming up on Day 6. Today, Beyond a Ceasefire. They need to understand that this is not sustainable. How a U.S. policy shift could pave a new path forward for Israel and Gaza. London, Ontario's new strategy for homeless encampments. Our shelters are full. There's no uh, rentals. The case for tolerating tent cities. And farewell to a giant. She's kind of been the one that I've looked up to my whole life. Tributes pour in as Christine Sinclair leaves the pitch. All today on Day 6, the Good to Have Goals edition. We know, as you know, the gravity of this moment. We feel, as you feel, the urgency of this work. And we see, as you see, that the world has reached a crossroads. That's Dr. Sultan Al-Jaber, president of the COP28 Climate Conference, at the opening ceremony on Thursday. This year's COP is being held in the United Arab Emirates, a choice of host country that's raised a few eyebrows. I think history records will show that in 2023, for COP28, metaphorically speaking, we let a mosquito lead the fight against malaria. The UAE is known for being a major producer of fossil fuels, the planet's most polluting industry. And Al Jaber himself is the CEO of Adnoc, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, which some analysts say is on track to increase its emissions by 40% this decade. Earlier this week, the BBC reported on leaked documents that suggest Al Jaber had plans to use COP to sign oil and gas deals with other countries, an allegation he has denied. These allegations are false, not true, incorrect, and not accurate. There have already been some important developments at COP28. The conference kicked off with a tentative agreement for the world's first climate damage fund. But the oil industry's oversized role at COP28 is a big red flag for Emily Atkin. She's a climate reporter and the editor-in-chief of the newsletter Heated. She says it's okay to be skeptical of COP28, but that doesn't mean we should look away. Emily, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning. Thank you for having me. You've been covering climate for a long time, and you've written about the toll that that can take. Where is your head at this week? Uh, oh my God. Well, honestly, COP28 is extremely frustrating for me. I, I feel sucky about the fact that COP28 is being run by a literal fossil fuel baron. I feel bad, particularly about the fact that his plan to achieve progress is to 
give oil and gas companies more influence over the climate change summit. And I feel really bad about that reporting that just came out showing that he's been using his position as the head of COP28 to lobby foreign governments to buy oil and gas from his gas company that he runs. We have done this before. We keep involving oil and gas companies in our climate negotiations as the whole world, and we keep massively failing to meet our climate targets. And we're not at a place right now where we can fail anymore. How is it that that Dr. Sultan Al-Jaber, how is it that he is the guy running the show? Who makes these decisions? And what does it say to you that this is where we are? Well, the UN makes these decisions. And, and to be fair, you know, this is, this is not the first time we've had uh, the COP summit hosted by a nation that is you know, essentially a petro state. But the implication of it is when you have the leader of the summit be the CEO of a national oil and gas company, that person controls the agenda for the summit. They control who gets access to the summit, what are the questions and negotiations going to look like, and also the correspondence that everybody is having over these climate plans those are going through someone who is also the CEO of the multinational, you know, oil and gas company, Adnoc, the uh, oil and gas company that Al Jaber runs, has been able to access and read emails to and from the COP28 Climate Summit office. So this is like, uh, there's a French MP that said this is like having a tobacco multinational company overseeing the internal work of the World Health Organization. You have two things that are directly conflicted with each other that are mixing that that are not supposed to. And with five years left before our carbon budget runs out, before we reach the 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold, it's like I can't express enough how much this should ring alarm bells in people's heads. So Al Jaber has denied some of the allegations about the the, the double dealing, the, the uh, sending talking points to various uh, fossil fuel interests in, in other countries. But he has also said that he wants COP28 participants to achieve game-changing results. So what are the results that you think he's hoping for? Personally, um, what I think the results that he's hoping for is I think that he's hoping to convince the world that it is feasible and realistic to solve climate change and slow climate change effectively while still extracting massive amounts of oil and gas. I have not seen any credible evidence that it is possible to keep the world under 1.5 degrees Celsius and still do the amount of of extraction of fossil fuels that Sultan Al-Jaber and other oil extracting nations say that we can, that Exxon and Chevron say that we can. The evidence is, is super slim and it is dependent on technologies that do not exist in the way that they say that it will. So you're talking about carbon capture now. Precisely. And I really think that that's what you're going to see a lot at COP28, you're going to see Sultan Al-Jaber and oil producing nations really talking up carbon capture, really talking up the idea that we can have both. We can have the fossil fuel economy continue the same way we're extracting right now and still have mm-hmm. climate. And I really want to just warn people about how highly disputed that statement is, how, how evidentiarily thin the statement is. 
when, when we look at something like COP28, given how central fossil fuel production is to the conversation about the climate crisis, isn't it important and necessary that oil and gas companies are represented there along with oil producing nations like UAE? I mean, don't they have to have a seat at the table for any progress to be made? In a perfect world, absolutely. I completely agree with you. My problem is the fact that fossil fuel companies have consistently abused their seat at the table in order to slow down and delay effective climate policy. That is the number one reason why we are in the situation that we're in right now, where we have five years left of our remaining carbon budget if we don't stop emitting so much. What about the other seats at the table? I mean, you're, you're, you're speaking very articulately today about the sense of urgency around the window that we have, the amount of time that we have left before we reach the benchmark of 1.5 degrees. Do you expect anybody else to talk about the urgency during the conference? Oh, my God, 100 percent. I mean, the reason that I still think it is so important to be engaged and paying attention to this conference is the presence of the Global South, of the G77, of the countries that are most vulnerable, the countries that have contributed the least to climate change and yet are the most affected, they yeah. are depending on the outcomes at this summit in order to achieve financing for climate-friendly development, in order to start a fund for reparations for loss and damages that are happening to their countries because of climate change. Mm -hmm. Their voices are incredibly important, and that is why it is so frustrating to have this process be seemingly used in order to promote oil and gas extraction, to promote extraction of the fuels that have put these countries in the, in the dire situation that they're in. Is there anything about COP28 or what, what you're seeing in the fight against climate change right now that makes you feel optimistic? Yeah, I would say the thing that makes me feel optimistic is the fact that 70,000 people are going to this COP and um, there are a lot of voices of activists, developing nations and vulnerable nations that have really grown stronger and more influential. I think the fact that you're even seeing what I would call phase two negotiations on a loss and damages fund, um, mm -hmm. a real fund to provide for the expenses for the damages that these vulnerable countries are experiencing because of climate change. I mean, that was unthinkable a few years ago. I think that we are entering into an era where the reality is sinking in for more and more people. And I think as that reality sinks in more, you see this fight get, I guess, a little more intense. The fact that we are having these conversations and keeping our eye on the ball is good news. And I think that we just kind of have to keep that up. Emily Atkin, it was really nice to talk to you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Emily Atkin is the editor-in-chief of the Heated Newsletter. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. It really sets India and the United States um, uh, on the edge in terms of diplomatic relationships, if this is proved true. Canada knows what it's like to have that diplomatic relationship on edge. And a newly unsealed U.S. criminal indictment appears to have a link backing up Canadian claims that Indian agents were behind the death of Hardeep Nijjar, a Sikh activist who was shot and killed in Surrey, B.C. in June. This week's document reveals that U.S. agents foiled an attempt to kill a Sikh separatist in New York at the end of June. And that same plot 
allegedly also included a plan to assassinate three Canadians. According to the documents, nine days before Nidger's murder, the accused in the U.S. said there was a big target in Canada. The plot came to light after the alleged Indian agent involved met and revealed the details to a U.S. undercover officer. And Ireland is mourning another of its musical greats. Shane McGowan, the frontman for the Pokes, died on Thursday after a long illness. He was 65. Shane grew up listening to traditional Irish music, but in the 80s he joined the punk scene in London. And by 1984, the Pogues released their first album, a sweaty fusion of Irish music and punk. Shane was a heavy drinking hellraiser who helped bring Irish music to the world. He's best remembered for Fairy Tale of New York, but this is If I Should Fall From Grace With God, which feels like the right song to play today. Still, lots to come on day six, including removing tent cities won't solve the shelter issue, how one city has decided to cope. The solutions are long term here. Nothing is going to change overnight. I'm Brent Bambury. The way Israel defends itself matters. It's imperative that Israel act in accordance with international humanitarian law and the laws of war. That was U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken speaking from Israel on Thursday. Heavy fighting is once again underway this weekend in Gaza after negotiators' efforts to extend a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas failed on Friday. The temporary ceasefire first came into effect on November 24th, and it was tenuous from the start. It was initially set to last for just four days. Ultimately, it was extended twice before talks fell apart. Prime Minister Netanyahu insisted all along that Israel's military operations in Gaza would eventually resume. But the United States and its partners in the region had been pushing hard for further extensions to the truce. While the ceasefire held, Hamas released more than 100 of the hostages who had been in Gaza since October 7th, including 80 Israelis. In return, Israel released more than 200 Palestinian prisoners from detention. And the reprieve also allowed aid workers to transport desperately needed food and supplies into Gaza. Nancy O'Kale is a policy analyst and advocate for human rights and democracy in the Middle East and North Africa and the president of the Center for International Policy. She says the ceasefire represented a breakthrough in the conflict, one that could still signal a new path forward. And she's calling for an overhaul of U.S. policy towards the Middle East. Nancy O'Kale joins me now from Washington, D.C. Nancy, good morning. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Brent. Thank you for having me. You've written that this past week's ceasefire should be the first step in a larger process that would, this is a quote, see an overhaul of American policy. What did the ceasefire reveal to you in terms of openness from the U.S. to change its approach? What the ceasefire reveals is a proof of concept that when you push and put your weight behind a diplomatic solution, only positive results come out of this. How and why the United States have changed slightly its position to accepting a brief uh, ceasefire, or at least to begin with a pause or a humanitarian pause, is a result of various factors. 
in Israel and globally. When the analogy of the 9-11 was uh, presented as a way to think of the October 7th attacks on Israel's uh, 9-11, something was missed out there that the world has changed. There is more awareness of the impact of war. There is more awareness about the increased global militarization, particularly with the younger generation who are able to witness in, in real time almost what's happening. And this has created a pressure within the United States uh, from the public. But also to a large extent, there was a huge pressure within Israel mainly from the families of the hostages mm -hmm. that are putting pressure on uh, the Israeli government and Netanyahu to stop the bombing because they see this was not helpful in bringing back the hostages, uh, at least bringing them back alive. As it became clear that the ceasefire would not be sustained, Anthony Blinken commented on Thursday that Israel should comply with international law and spare civilians as it wages war against Hamas in, in Gaza. What did you make of that? What, how significant is that? Is it words or will it be backed up by action? I hope it would be backed up by action because as long as this remains in the realm of rhetoric, uh, it even makes more damage than not saying those words at all. Because with every statement that is not backed by action, the credibility of the United States continue to be severely damaged by its position. I mean, the bear hug to not just Israel, the bear hug to Netanyahu and the unconditioned support is seen to be very hard to be accepted mm -hmm. globally uh, in the general public. So if October 7th and what came afterwards does not provide a loud, alarming bell for the United States to change its policy, I think nothing will. Many will say that an overhaul of the U.S. approach is expecting too much, that there's inertia when it comes to the U.S. and Israel, and the U.S. will always fall back to previous positions. What do you see that maybe others don't in this instance that makes you hopeful that a change in policy from the United States could happen now? What makes me hopeful is that I see October 7th attack, which were horrific, as a wake-up call for the global community and the United States in particular, which has the biggest influence on the geopolitics in the Middle East. At the same time, what happened on October 7th onwards is also not the usual that we have seen in terms of scale, mm -hmm. in terms of the level of death in such a short time, and what it reveals about the situation of the Palestinians in Gaza, the occupation, the siege. So I see the opportunity in the crisis. It is a wake-up call for the United States to understand that the military solution is not a solution that forging peace deals that is based and framed around the concept of arms for peace and forging deals with authoritarian regimes that don't represent their people, and also that those deals ignore the Palestinian 
issue, mm-hmm. they need to understand that this is not sustainable. And I think the message is clear right now. Are they learning them the lesson? I'm not sure, but it's very difficult to imagine that things will go back as they were before October 7th. Many people support the elimination of Hamas as the stated goal of the Israeli government and military. And you have written that that goal is unrealistic. So how could Israel tolerate a Palestinian state on its borders if Hamas still has influence within the state? Yes, the Israeli government and now more so is like the Israeli people will not tolerate the presence of Hamas as a governing body. However, in order to eradicate Hamas as a political authority and not just as a military power, the Palestinians have to be given another option Mm -hmm. of living with dignity, living with rights and living in safety. What is happening right now is only exacerbating the different factors that allowed Hamas to exist in the first place. Mm -hmm. The lack of justice, the lack of fair conditions under which the Palestinians are able to live. If the United States should become one of the central actors in the creation of Palestinian statehood, then the Palestinian people, and I'm talking about the people here, not Fatah or the PA or, or Hamas, they will have to accept that the U.S. is also the number one supplier of weapons and the most loyal ally of Israel. How difficult would that be for the Palestinian people? Well, first of all, when we phrase questions around what the Palestinians will accept or not accept, I think there's a problem with this framing to begin with. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are people who are just living at a gunpoint, literally just trying to survive. So it's not even a question of who would be the arbitrator or the main influence behind stopping the bombardment. It is, will it actually be able And is the United States truly serious about supporting a safe and peaceful life for the Palestinians? That would take much more than just words, much more than acknowledging in statements that the United States are calling upon Israel to abide by international humanitarian law, Mm -hmm. but at the same time continues to provide unconditioned military aid and arms to Israel, which actually defies U.S. domestic laws, not just the international humanitarian laws. It also has to be serious about providing the circumstances, the economic support that allows the Palestinians to function and have a functioning government body that would be sustained. Otherwise, I mean, all this will fall apart. Any attempt to change the status quo will not materialize. Nancy O'Kale, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much, Brent. Nancy O'Kale is the president of the Center for International Policy.
I think it's a disgrace. There are no shelter spaces. I, can, I know because I was trying to find someone a shelter space at 7.30 last night. And the best I could do was put her in layers of clothes and give her a sleeping bag. A week ago, the city of Toronto cleared a homeless encampment in Kensington Market. Some of the people living there had called it home for nearly two years. The day after that, a fire destroyed most of another encampment just a few blocks away. Both camps had multiple fire calls over the past year. And fires have also hit encampments in London, Ontario. There have been three in the past week. Last April, a woman died in an encampment fire. Encampments have grown in cities and towns across the country as the cost of living has continued to rise, along with a lack of shelter spaces. But this winter, London is taking a different approach. Rather than dismantling encampments, they're offering them services, including meals, washing stations, and portable toilets. They're also providing fire safety education and garbage cleanup. A coalition of dozens of agencies is working together to provide these services. They're also developing community hubs and building out longer-term supportive housing. Not everyone is on board with the plan to provide services to encampments. There's the constant threat of fire, and there's concerns about drug use and overall safety. Greg Nash is the director of the London Intercommunity Health Centre and a co-chair of the coalition Helping the Unhoused. Greg, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning, Brent. Happy to be here. Greg, who are the people who live in the encampments, and, and what are their circumstances today? That looks very much different than it did uh, pre-pandemic. Before COVID, it was generally uh, males between the ages of 25 and 40. That has changed substantially. We see people who have significant developmental delays, who were supported with their families, and those supports have fallen apart because uh, parents have aged out and passed away, or uh, because of the increased cost in the rental market, mm. people on uh, social assistance like Ontario Disabilities Program no longer can afford rent in London and Ontario. We've seen rents go from uh, $900 for a one-bedroom apartment as high as 2000 as an entry-level point now. So mm. significant increase in cost. We're also seeing people with significant mental health issues. So income becomes an issue and then uh, housing becomes a connected issue to that. We're also seeing a lot of young people out in community now, more than we've ever seen before, who are just not able to get into the job market and aren't able to afford housing or finding a, a group of people they can move in together with. We're also, and this is uh, extremely heartbreaking, we're seeing uh, senior citizens out on the street now who have just base level supports and can't afford to be in the market anymore. The, the term rent eviction has become uh, synonymous across Ontario because of the inability for people to stay housed who are on low income. So certainly a wider group of people than you saw pre-pandemic. London is a city of 400,000 people. Can you estimate how many are living in encampments in the city right now? So we estimate night overnight, we're looking at 600 plus people sleeping outside. And then on our by name list, so those who are underhoused in shelters uh, or with no fixed address, as high as 4,000. And that number is much higher than it was pre-pandemic, I would imagine. Way uh, higher. We were just around 1,500 on our by name list uh, prior to the pandemic and uh, around 100 to 150 people a night sleeping rough. So what's changed, Greg? Why so many more people now in, in these years? A couple of things have changed, Brent. Uh, first is the housing crisis. So 
London, Ontario is experiencing a housing crisis like many municipalities across the country. Ours is very acute. Uh, we've had a large influx of people uh, moving down the 401 from Toronto into the London area. We have a 0% vacancy rate mm-hmm. and housing prices in London, Ontario have doubled and tripled in the last couple of years. At the same time as a housing crisis, we see a continued lack of supports for those experiencing mental health increased mental health concerns. And uh, one of the significant contributors is the poison drug supply on the street, the fentanyl and crystal meth. Uh, It's uh, continually got worse in terms of the content of that substance and is causing great harm to people in our community. Well, London's not alone in in seeing encampments appear, and and many, many municipalities in the country have then taken down the encampments, they've removed them, but the City of London now has decided to provide amenities like trash pickup and washing facilities rather than try to dismantle these encampments. What's the benefit here? Why is that a good thing? Well, we've done a significant amount of learning in the last couple of years. Uh, One of the key learnings is that when we disrupt people's lives, people who are already housing deprived and the stability of their day-to-day living activities is so precarious, having them move every day, uh, typically bylaw would come out at six or seven in the morning and people would have to start pack up and move and then nowhere to move to. Our shelters are full. There's no uh, rentals. So it's impacting both their biomedical situation, their health, as well as their mental health, creating increased uh, anxiety and then needing to use coping strategies because both now their physical health and mental health is deteriorating. We've decided to use a rights-based approach, which is new in Canada and This stems from a report uh, put out to the federal government called the National Protocols for Advancing the Health of Those uh, Who Experience Homelessness. So we're using that rights-based approach to addressing the concerns in our community of people who are experiencing homelessness. And those concerns far extend beyond just those experiencing homelessness and suffering from that. Uh, It's impacting our entire community. Uh, People in neighborhoods, uh, our friends and family enjoying Uh, the fullness of of community, the playgrounds, the sports activities, feeling safe, as well as uh, businesses and developers. It's impacting the entire community. But how do you reassure people who are living next to the encampments that the the services you're providing and the continuation of the encampments is going to be a safe environment for them and their children or their aged parents or their pets or anybody else who's lived in that community for their lives? I would hate to simplify this, Brent, in any way. Um, it is complicated and the solutions are long-term here. Nothing is going to change overnight. It's taken us decades to get to this situation and it will take us some years to, to work out of it. What we're doing at service depots uh, in London, Ontario, and by not sanctioning encampments, but allowing people to stay as safe as possible in encampments, uh, is the goal here to alleviate some of the suffering they're experiencing so that spill out, that spill out suffering doesn't uh, come to the rest of the community. The other criticism, Greg, is that providing these services enables or accommodates the encampments and that that could take pressure off government officials to urgently find suitable housing or a long-term solution. How do you respond to that? Couldn't agree more. That is a concern we have too. We never want to normalize uh, homelessness. 
encampments or sleeping outside. We don't want to see what we've seen in other big cities uh, across North America with thousands of people set up in large encampments. Um, one of the things that we've done here, Brent, is uh, encampments that we have safety guidelines for encampments. We don't allow 100 people in one space. Uh, mm -hmm. No more than six tents are set up in one space. We have, on top of uh, building a service depot system and alleviating some of the suffering, have a much more robust plan that includes developing hubs. Hubs are designed with places for people to come indoor, stabilize, get well, get their mental health and medical needs met. And then at the same time, we're investing and building out highly supportive housing. So this is a very strategic response with a multi-pronged approach. First, supporting people outside encampments. Second, uh, transitioning them inside to hubs. And then uh, once stabilized, move them into highly supportive housing. I've seen municipal politicians campaign against encampments. Was it difficult to convince some people that you were on the right track? Absolutely. People want to see that we're not just supporting encampments and we're not okay with people living outside. They want to see next steps. And we have clear next steps and we have buy-in from our uh, key community leaders, our key uh, political leaders as well. And we've reached out to both our provincial and federal partners at uh, government and funder levels to say, hey, we think we have a solution here. We're working towards us. Partner with us to, to make this happen. In the short term, Greg, you're staring down another long winter. What will the cold weather mean for the people that you're working with? We're really concerned about this. Um, we have 600 plus people, as I mentioned, outside. Those 600 plus people, we have not been able to create enough indoor spaces for all of them to come in. So we plan on doubling down on the service depot approach to make sure people uh, stay alive, uh, stay safe and stay healthy as possible while remaining outside. It's not an ideal solution, not one any of us want to see, but we need some more time to build this infrastructure uh, that will allow people to get indoors, help them to get stabilized, help them to get uh, their health needs and their mental health needs met. Greg Nash, thank you very much for being with us. My pleasure, Brett. Greg Nash is the director of the London Intercommunity Health Centre in London, Ontario. Still lots to come on day six, including it is among the world's largest displacement crises. And there's no end in sight. The humanitarian cost of the war in Sudan. I keep remembering, you know, 20 years ago, we said never again. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. You can listen on demand with the CBC Listen app. And we're available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day6. Can Sinclair deliver? Of course she can. And Christine Sinclair has a 10th Olympic goal. Christine Sinclair, it's two. Would you believe it? Captain Fantastic. Sinclair has done it! The Queen of the North! Captain Fantastic is right. Canadian soccer legend Christine Sinclair has had a lot of career highs. If we let the full reel play, 
it would take us to the end of the show, next week's show. She is the highest scoring soccer player, man or woman in the world, with 190 international goals to date. She's played for Canada at four Olympic Games. You probably remember her colossal gold medal victory in Tokyo in 2020. But next week, Christine Sinclair will play the last international match of her career. Honestly, you can't play forever, and this seems like a good time to be done. Sinclair announced her retirement from international play in October. She'll be making her final game appearance next week in Vancouver. And nobody will be cheering her on more loudly than the next generation of competitive players in Canadian women's soccer. Here's what two rising stars in the sport had to say about Christine Sinclair's retirement. There's been so many times where I've got to see Christine Sinclair play live, but I would say if I was to think about one game, would be when she won the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. I remember I was with my family in Whistler at the time, and it was a super early game, so we got up early, and it was totally worth it. It was such a good game. I just remember I could not take my eyes off her the whole game. I was just watching where she goes, watching what she did, and I was just in awe. I think it was in London, but I can't exactly pinpoint which game. She had scored an absolute banger, and it led them to win that match, and it was an absolutely stunning goal. I'm Olivia Smith, I'm 19 years old, and I'm currently playing for Sporting in Portugal. And I've been throughout the Canadian national team youth system since I was about 12. And I got my first call up to the women's national team at 15. My name's Kira Blundell, and I've been playing soccer since I was about two. I play for the Vancouver Whitecaps Girls Elite Rex program, and next year I'll be going to Arizona State for post-secondary. I think Sinclair came on my radar when I was about six or seven years old. I remember growing up, I was watching Canada national team play and, you know, the Olympics, the World Cup. I've spent so much time watching your game. I have notebooks full of, you know, I'd write in possession keys, out of possession keys. I just want to build my game off of her game. There was actually a camp that I attended and Sinclair was there and I was absolutely terrified because she's obviously someone I looked up to and I was just so excited. So whenever I got my opportunity on the ball and she was watching, I'd always try to do some cool trick. And then she saw it and she said like, good job clapping for me. And I think, you know, being like seven or eight years old and Sinclair watching you do a move that like was definitely something very memorable for me. For me growing up, I didn't want to be a professional soccer player. I literally said to people, I'd like to be Tristan Sinclair. Like she was my idol and I just, I just loved her so much. I think what makes her unique is her drive. She's just constantly going. And again, it's the goal scoring ability that she has. She's the best in the world, literally the GOAT. <laughs> Something that I really admire as an attacking player is her ability to score from half chances. So whenever she gets the ball, no matter where she's on the field, I think her first instinct is, can I score? With her right foot, left foot, volley header, you name it, and she's mastered it. She's so good and I just, I, I have no words for it. Like she's just amazing at creating those chances for herself and not just for herself, her teammates as well. She's always willing to take two minutes just to check in on you and just encourage you. And I'm extremely grateful and honored to have been able to share the field with her. 
The day I heard Sinclair was retiring, I'm not gonna lie, it was a pretty sad day for me. When I heard that she was retiring, I was very sad, but obviously this time comes for a lot of players. She's kind of been the one that I've looked up to my whole life. She's inspired me. So for me and my teammates, when we saw that Instagram post of her hanging up her cleats, our jaws kind of just dropped to the floor. Definitely gonna miss her. Of course, she's one of my idols and it's hard to see her go, but yeah, I just want to thank her for everything she's done for the country and for football in Canada. I wish I would be watching her final international game, but I will definitely try and watch it on my phone with my teammates. I'll get to see front row, which I'm very excited. I think the atmosphere when people even see her touch the field is going to be absolutely incredible. She's a Canadian legend and we know she'll inspire off the field just as much as she does on the field. It was just an honor and privilege to even get the opportunity to step on the field with her. Honestly, we're just excited to see what she does next. Kiara Blundell is a forward for the Whitecaps FC Girls Elite Academy. She's also captain of the team. And Olivia Smith is the youngest member of Canada's national women's team. She'll be at Christine Sinclair's final game next week, and she's hoping she might even get some time on the pitch. Christine Sinclair's final international match will be in Vancouver on Tuesday. With the fighting in Gaza and the war in Ukraine taking much of the world's attention, there is one conflict that is being horribly ignored, and that is the civil war in Sudan. It's been over seven months since fighting first broke out in Sudan's capital Khartoum between the Sudanese army and the paramilitary group Rapid Support Forces, the RSF. With pressure from the international community, the two groups agreed to share power in a new transitional government in Sudan after a coup in 2021. But a growing tension over the chain of command grew into a full-blown war last April. The sky opened up and it was just a rain of, you know, sounds of bullets and artillery over our heads. That's Dahlia Abdelmonaim. She had just escaped the fighting in Khartoum when we last spoke to her in April. Since then, the war has spread west to Darfur and around the country, killing some 9,000 people and displacing millions. The state infrastructure is collapsing, whether it's healthcare, education, social welfare, it's gone. The United Nations has called the situation a humanitarian nightmare and called for nearly $3 billion in aid for people fleeing and displaced within the country. According to UNICEF, 13.6 million children who are caught up in the conflict currently lack food, safe water, shelter, and medical care. Dahlia, like many others, has left Sudan and now lives in neighboring Cairo, Egypt. But in the absence of successful foreign intervention in Sudan, civilians like her are stepping up to help. Before the war, she was running a bakery business in Khartoum. Her life now is very different. Well, I can't bring myself to bake or do anything to do with baking anymore. I just, it doesn't even occur to me. What I find myself doing is I'm advocating for Sudan. I comment on Sudan, I write on Sudan, I work for Sudan. It's taken over my life. Dahlia Abdelmonim joins me now from Cairo. Dahlia, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Brent. You're in Cairo now, but I understand you have friends and family who are still in Sudan. What are they telling you about day-to-day life? It's very hard to get to get 
you know, up-to-date information from them simply because connect, uh, internet and mobile connectivity is very, very patchy and there's still severe power cuts and, of course, they can't charge their phones and so on. So when we do get, you know, any information from them, they try to remain positive and have, a, you know, an upbeat outlook, but we all know because we get all these reports that the situation is really bad. You know, price of food supplies have skyrocketed. There's an issue with finding basic medication like, you know, painkillers and so on. A lot of them have lost their jobs, their source of income. Khartoum alone had around 11, 11 million inhabitants and nearly 90% of them have fled. Mm-hmm. And out of the, that 90%, the majority are described as being internally displaced. So they've moved to other cities and other towns. And of course, this influx of people has resulted in like a, a hike up in, in, in costs and prices. We're trying to keep those who are still left, who are still in Sudan, you know, we're keeping them alive, which, you know, we're trying to help them in any way that we can. I'm thinking about the, the number of people who've left their homes and who are displaced within the country. Over 5 million people. That's, that's more than 10% of the population of the country. How vulnerable are they in the face of that chaos? They're very vulnerable because when, with war, especially the type of war that's actually happening right now in Sudan, there are no rules. The rules have, they don't care about the rules, you know, the, the rules of conduct, of war conduct. They don't, they don't apply anymore. So you're at risk and there's already risk of the war, the conflict spreading and it has spread. You know, it's gone to the out, outskirts of Khartoum. Yes. Darfur, with the exception of eastern Darfur, it has pretty much fallen in the hands of the militia, the RSF. So there's always that worry, you know, what could happen next? You know, could this town be next or could that city be next? And, and you mentioned Darfur. And of course, 20 years ago, that region bore the brunt of mass atrocities. How concerned are you that the current, because that was never really resolved in, in, in many ways. And how, how concerned are you that the current crisis could devolve into that direction once again? It has devolved, according to a lot of, you know, experts and, you know, those in, who, who've studied Darfur before and are studying it now. A genocide and ethnic cleansing is happening. Mm. And the Masalit tribe are bearing the brutal brunt and brutal force of the RSF militia. And it's just, I keep remembering, you know, 20 years ago, we said never again. And we said never again after Bosnia, and we said never again after Rwanda. But it's happening again. And mm-hmm. unlike 20 years before, we know it's happening. We can see it happening right in front of us because, you know, information technology and pictures and videos and social media, we know what's happening. And yet nothing is being done. It's For me, it's heartbreaking because I have survivor's guilt and the fact that I managed to get out, you know, with my family, and yet there's millions out there in my in my own in my home country, and I can't do anything for them. And I we all we're all trying, we're all trying to do as much as as best as we can, but it feels like we've slipped through the cracks of the world's attention and the global the global international community. We're trying as much as we can to highlight what's happening and to tell people, you know, don't forget what's happening. It's happening again. You've been involved in trying to get help for people who are unable to escape. So what have you been doing? What what have individuals like you been doing, both inside and outside of the country? The conference I was involved in, what we did was basically we realized 
you know, we can't do anything regarding the war, but we can do something about those who are caught up because of the war, how we can help them. So basically, we, the conference was, was acting like a bridge to connect international NGOs and aid workers with the local workers, the local, you know, initiatives and grassroots, you know, civic groups who are still there and doing help and, and see how they can, you know, find a way to merge, to get together and to help each other. Mm-hmm. Because one side wants to help, the other side wants the help, but they can't meet in the middle. We took away the middleman and we just put them all together in, in like five rooms. And we said, okay, discuss, come up with ways, come up with recommendations and go back and implement these, you know, these recommendations. But the broader conflict is continuing. And there was an attempt at peace talks between the RSF and the Sudanese military in Jeddah last month. That did not work. What's missing in how the international community is approaching or not approaching this conflict? Uh, it's, I, I don't know what to say about this. It's just I feel that the international community can do so much more than the, what they're already doing. I mean, they seem to, for me, they like to release a lot of statements, but statements do nothing. You know, if you really wanted, you know, you can buckle down, you can you know, yank the chains that really can have an effect on both these sides. Involve regional actors, involve local actors. Don't just keep it between the two generals. Who stands to gain from a prolonged war in Sudan? Who stands to lose, you know, from a prolonged war in Sudan? And the ones who stand to lose, we're not not invited to that table, so to speak, you know. The civilians are not there. And yet we're the ones who are paying the price of this war. And I think, you know, more severe sanctions should be in in place, you know, diplomatic and economic sanctions. More effort needs to be put in. This is how many rounds of peace talks they've had, ceasefires in the Jeddah talks, and they've all failed. One of the parties, the RSF, has its roots in the Janjaweed militia, which we heard a lot about during the Darfur crisis. And this conflict has now turned into an ethnic and and racial division as well. Can you tell us what that means for the cohesion of the the broader civil society in Sudan? It's a disaster. For me, as a Sudanese, I've always felt one of our strongest strengths is our diversity. That's one of our strengths. But instead of utilizing it to our benefit, we're utilizing it for our own Mm self-destruction. I always look at the case of Rwanda and how they emerged after the Rwandan genocide and what took place there. And I was just reading up on something called social healing. You know, heal communities that have been hurt by trauma, by war, by conflict. And I think that's what we should be focusing on right now. You know, that should be the path that we should take as Sudanese, as citizens, to make sure that these divisions that are being exacerbated through war are not, you know, they don't transfer throughout the whole society, the whole country. Dahlia, earlier you mentioned that you think you have survivor's guilt, but you did have a life in Khartoum that was meaningful and that was productive and you had a career and now you're a full-time advocate for people who are suffering from this conflict. But do you think about your life as a baker and the fact that that, that was how you lived your life before all of this happened? Do you, do you think about that and re- think about returning to it or what you've lost? I can't afford to think about it because if I do, I think I would just break down because, I mean, honestly, I, 
I've been asked to make a cake here and there, and I can't bring myself to do anything. I just keep, and I don't want to go down that route. Right now, right now, I wake up and I go to sleep just thinking about what to do for Sudan. What can I do? What else can I do? And I'm not allowing myself that that one moment of moment of relapse to think about my former life or my past life, because if I do, I would I think I would just lose it, and I can't afford to given to my feelings at this moment in time, because I think the broader picture requires me to just keep going and be on autopilot, so to speak. Dalia Abdelmonim, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Dalia Abdelmonim is a former journalist and baker turned advocate in the war in Sudan. Rift from the headlines. And here it is, Riff from the Headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. Have you seen the little piggies crawling in the dirt? And for all the little piggies, life is getting worse. Madonna and Borderline, the zombies with Alien Invasion, and the Beatles with Piggies. And Joe Fisher of Gabriola, BC, correctly guessed the headline that we're looking for. Wild Canadian super pigs are approaching the U.S. border. Congratulations, Joe. A Day 6 tote bag will be on its way to you soon. And now, here's this week's clue. Guess who's back? Back, back, back again. Shady's back. and we're looking for the story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer, put riff from the headlines in the subject and send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address because one right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag. And you can always hear the clues again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. From the headlines. And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, Mickey Edwards, Pedro Sanchez, and Yamri Tusfu Tedesen. Our digital producer is Paul Hantiuk. Our senior producer this week is Annie Bender. And I'm Brent Bambry. It's six days to the next strike by Quebec's public sector unions, five days to the first night of Hanukkah, and seven days till we meet again on Day 6.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.